Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Good morning. Today is March 20th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Understanding the Law. Uh, Today we had a guest lined up. We were going to be speaking about medical marijuana. Unfortunately, we had some uh, scheduling conflicts, and so our guest will be on in the next few weeks. So today we are going to change up the format to get to some Uh, additional questions and answers that have been posed by our listeners. Um, They range from legal questions, basic legal questions, to more complex issues, and we're going to touch on some um, personal development and business inquiries that we have received. So a little bit of a different format today, a little bit of a change-up, but uh, it's spring, seasons are changing, so I guess everyone's going to have to deal with a little bit of a of a change on today's show. Um, I also want to get through some uh, discussion about what's going to be coming up in the next few weeks because we really do have a number of really interesting shows with interesting guests, and I think that uh, we should kind of just take a quick look to see what we're going to be having, you know, as far as a discussion in the next few weeks, and that way it'll give uh, give the listeners a chance to post some questions on a Facebook page and kind of join the discussion because, you know, really what this radio show is about is it's about you, the listeners. Um, You know, I want you to engage with us. I want you to ask questions. We're very thankful for the questions that do come in because, you know, we we feel like we're doing something as a service that uh, sort of demystifies, as I've said before, this whole practice of law because, you know, really we're not brain surgeons. We're lawyers. Um, What we do is a skill it's something that we're trained for, something that we develop over time. But uh, because we have those skills doesn't mean that we as lawyers are better than our clients. In fact, without our clients, lawyers are nothing. So this is for our listeners, for our clients, for those people who have general questions who cannot get answers without paying a lawyer a tremendous amount of money uh, to try to figure out those answers. So that's what, what we're here for, and I want to engage you, and I want to give you time to talk about, uh, you know, some of the things that, that we're going to be having on the show. So very exciting times. But let's start with the question of ans- and answers. We had done something like this a few weeks ago. Uh, we had gotten through a number of the questions. Now let's uh, try to delve into that bottom half. <clears throat> so the first question, uh, it's, a, it's a common question, what is a deposition? So we've all heard the term deposition, be it on television or in a movie. Um, We've seen it a little bit, you know, on on film. Um, Depositions that I can remember that, that, you know, are interesting. Um, The Office, when Michael was being deposed as part of a sexual harassment lawsuit filed by his then-girlfriend Jan, for those of you who watch The Office, right, that was very, very funny. Uh, recently, we've all seen clips of Justin Bieber at his deposition um, being less than cooperative, if you've seen that footage. Uh, we've seen depositions, if you've seen the uh, John Travolta movie, a Civil Action, I think that was out back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and that's actually a true story about an environmental issue out of Woburn, Massachusetts. That's actually a very good book if you... Uh, we're interested in the in that movie. I suggest that you pick up the book. It's an old book, um, and you've probably seen the movie, but the book is far more involved than the movie, and it really kind of gives you an insight into what what happened in that case. It's called a civil action. Uh, but you know, we've seen depositions. We've seen it on TV. 
And it looks um, everything from entertaining down to confusing. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. So a deposition, really, when you get to the heart of it, is nothing more than a question and answer session between a lawyer and a witness. Now, we're going to put this into context. We're going to, we're going to come up with a scenario. Uh, let's say, for example, that this is an employment law discrimination suit. That'll be our, our scenario. And uh, we're going to talk about Bob. Okay, so Bob is an employee at a large company, right? We're just going to call it large company. So while Bob's at work, he feels as though his female supervisor, I'm going to switch it up a bit, female supervisor is harassing him, okay, pinching his butt as he walks by, all sorts of things, and uh, Bob is offended, okay? So Bob ultimately ends up either being fired because he has refused her continued attempts at that, you know, groping or whatever the case may be, or he ends up quitting because he can't take it anymore. He just, his, his butt hurts. He can't stand being pinched. He doesn't like physical contact. So he files this lawsuit. Now, we talked about in the past how you file a complaint. That's how a lawsuit starts. And after you receive an answer from the other side, then you engage in this period called discovery. Okay, it's a period of time in a lawsuit where both sides are exchanging documents and information. And the idea behind it is that you as the plaintiff want to be able to prove your case, and you on, on the defense end want to disprove what the plaintiff's allegations are. So one method of doing that is through paper discovery, paper documents. You ask questions on paper, you ask for documents to be produced, and you exchange written documents. But there's nothing better than oral testimony. When you've got a witness in front of you where you can see the witness, you can look into the witness's eyes, you can observe their demeanor. Are they nervous? Are they sweating? Uh, do they look like they're telling you the truth? When um, they're, they're saying something, are they looking away? Is it an indication that they might not be being completely honest with you? So th that's, that's the key, if you ask me, in the discovery process to really preparing your case for trial. It's the deposition. So as part of the discovery process, one party, going back to our scenario, um, let's say in this case it's the plaintiff, it's Bob, he serves a notice to take deposition. Now it's called different things in, in various jurisdictions. Uh, New York calls it a, a, an examination before trial. New Jersey calls it a notice of deposition. Um, some states call it a notice to take uh, oral testimony, but whatever you call the notice, there's a notice that gets served that initiates the deposition process. Once that notice is served, the attorneys select a date and um, you have this deposition. So now let's get into the heart of the deposition itself. So I told you it's a question and answer session. So for those of you who are watching this on uh, video, um, you can see I'm at, at a table, and while it's a small table, um, depositions can be conducted in offices like this, at small tables just like this, or on a grand scale in a courtroom or in a large conference room. They, they occur at, for the most part, attorneys' offices. So the judge is not there. The court reporter uh, from the judge's Chambers is not there, right? The clerk, the law clerk is not there. So who is there? Well, let's go back to Bob's story. So Bob has served the notice to take deposition on large company because what he wants to prove is that this manager um, who was groping him had a supervisor. And Bob had complained to that supervisor about being groped. And the supervisor did nothing. In fact, the supervisor thought it was funny that Bob was offended by this. So Bob wants to take the deposition of the supervisor and of the groper. And so he serves this notice. They pick a date. So March 20th, we're going to have a deposition. It'll be in uh, Bob's attorney's office. So 
the attorneys and the witnesses will come to Bob's attorney's office and they will have hired an independent reporter. Now, a few minutes ago, I said there won't be a court reporter from the judge's chambers from the court there. That's true. An independent outside court reporter or stenographer is someone who will be brought in and will take down verbatim, word for word, what is said during the course of that discussion. So when you come in and you sit down at the table, you as the plaintiff, you'll be seated next to your lawyer for the most part, and the defendant or the witness who you're going to be questioning is seated next to his or her lawyer. And on either side of you will be a court reporter. Uh, it used to be years ago that the court reporter would have this uh, stenography machine, and they'd type in all these little you know, symbols, and you'd have no idea what was going on, but somehow these stenographers were able to capture word for word everything that was said. Nowadays, you see a lot more people using microphones and, um, and computers, laptops, tablets even. So while the equipment has changed, the idea behind it is still the same. So going back to Bob's case, Bob walks in, Bob sits down at a table just like this with his lawyer. Um, let's say that the supervisor is going to be the first one that is deposed. The supervisor sits across the table with her lawyer, and over here on my right is the court reporter. So everybody's here. We're all set. We're all ready to go. So since Bob, Bob's attorney, is the one that sent the notice, and Bob's attorney is the one who wants to question the supervisor, Bob's going to start. And what happens is he's going to give a series of instructions. They vary from attorney to attorney, but I can guarantee you that most of the instructions are going to be the same regardless of what state you're in, regardless of what attorney is doing the questioning. I'm going to go through the general instructions in a second. After the instructions, he's going to start asking questions. The questions really can be uh, broad-based questions. Now, remember, in Bob's case, he's here to question a supervisor about what Bob has said to the supervisor concerning the harassment that he, he allegedly um, believes has occurred. So Bob's lawyer is going to want to question this witness about procedure, about policy in the company, about whether or not she knew that Bob was being harassed, about uh, her actions in response to Bob's complaints, that sort of thing. So um, after those questions are asked, then the other witness will have the opportunity to be questioned by his or her attorney. Now, that is rare when a defendant who is being deposed by the plaintiff's attorney then has his or her lawyer cross-examine him or her. Uh, typically, when you are at a deposition as a defendant, you'll sit there, you'll answer the questions of the plaintiff's attorney, and then when you're done with the questions, you'll be done with the deposition. Now, the questions, I told you, are very broad in spectrum, and really just about anything can be asked by an attorney of you at a deposition, even if it's not relevant necessarily to, to the case. So, for example, in the case of Bob and the supervisor, Bob's attorney wants to get some background on the supervisor. So Bob's attorney is going to say things like or ask things like, um, Give me uh, your educational background. Where did you go to high school? Where did you go to college? What's your degree in? By the way, are you married? Do you have any children? What are your children's names? No, that's not relevant to the lawsuit. I mean, who cares? How does asking whether or not somebody has children, how is that going to impact Bob's lawsuit where he says that the supervisor didn't do what she was supposed to do? It's not important during a deposition. Those questions may not be admissible at trial, okay? So they're not going to come in at trial. You're not going to be sitting on the stand and, allow, and have a judge allow questions about your children in a case dealing with employment issues. But at a deposition, admissibility is not important, okay? Relevancy is semi-important, but even if something's not completely relevant, as long as you're not being... Um, deliberately uh, offensive or trying to harm the witness in some way or to say something to embarrass them, that sort of thing, 
you know, you're going to be given an opportunity to ask those questions. What do we, what do we know so far? Deposition. Part of the discovery phase. It's a question and answer session. It is attended by your attorney, the attorney who's going to be questioning you, and an independent court reporter or stenographer who is going to take down word for word everything that is said. What does she do with it when she's done? Well, it'll be put into what's called a transcript. It's a booklet, right? It's a, a bound booklet that has uh, the caption of the case on it, and then it has word for word, question, answer, question, answer. You know who's asking the questions, and you can read exactly what was asked and what the answer is. Why do they do this? Well, at trial, attorneys are permitted to use testimony that was obtained at a deposition to cross-examine witnesses, to prove or disprove something. So, for example, if I testified at a deposition that my favorite color was blue and somehow that's relevant to the case, and then I get on the stand at trial and I say my, my favorite color is purple, the attorney can whip out the transcript and say, aha, you know, you told me at your deposition under oath that your favorite color was blue, and now you're saying it's not. Were you lying then? Are you lying now? Why aren't you telling me the truth? How do I know what to believe? That sort of thing. And then, of course, you know, a jury looks at it and says, oh, wow, you know, maybe he's lying. Now I don't know whether or not to believe anything he says. So that's one way a deposition can be used. It can also be used in connection with motions, which is the next question we'll get into when we're done with depositions. But uh, it's something that can be used as an exhibit to a motion. So question and answer session. You are under oath at this question and answer session. So while you're in an informal setting, you're in an attorney's office, um, you don't need to, you know, you dress however you dress. You don't need to wear a suit. It's not like you're going to court. You know, you dress however you feel appropriate. Um, oftentimes there are breaks throughout the depositions. You know, it, it's not a formal, formal, I'm in court and this is really nerve-wracking kind of thing. You'll be in an attorney's office. It'll still be nerve-wracking, by the way. But you'll be in an attorney's office, an informal setting. But you, when you sit down and the court reporter starts the deposition, you are swearing under oath that what you're going to be saying is true and accurate. And it holds the same weight as if you were saying it on the stand in front of the judge and a jury. Okay. Now, to sum up, what is a deposition? It is part of the discovery phase. It is a question and answer session. You are sworn in under oath, and the statements you make have the same effect as if you were sitting on the stand at trial. The uh, attorneys are able to question you about a wide range of things. Whether or not they're admissible is not important. You have to answer those questions. And then when you're all done with the deposition, the court reporter will take a few days, maybe a week or so, and put together a transcript that uh, documents word for word what was said at the deposition. The transcript can be used by attorneys at trial or in motions. That's the overview. Now, let's get into what actually happens at the deposition and the instructions. So when Bob sits down, Bob's attorney is going to be doing the questioning. And so um, the supervisor, who's going to be the witness, is going to be sworn in. So we're all sitting at the table, and the court reporter says to the witness, please raise your right hand. And so the witness raises her right hand. Um, do you swear that you know, the testimony you give today is going to be the truth? The same thing that you've seen on TV, right? The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. The same way you get sworn in by a court deputy at trial um, is what happens at a deposition, except the stenographer is authorized to administer the oath. So now supervisor lady has been sworn in under oath and everything that she says from this point forward is going to be deemed to be a statement made under oath and therefore must be truthful. And therefore, if you contradict your statement at a later date, we can go back to the transcript and prove you wrong. Now that she's been sworn in, now let's pretend that I am Bob's attorney. I'm going to start with the instructions. Let's say that her name is Mrs. G. Good morning, Mrs. G. My name is Peter Lamont. I'm an attorney, and I represent Bob. 
who has been uh, groped and has filed a lawsuit against you and your company, and he's seeking damages. Are you aware of this lawsuit? And she says yes. And then I'm going to go through standard instructions. Now, before we get into your testimony, Mrs. G, I want to give you some instructions as to how these proceedings will go from this point forward. First of all, you have to understand that while you're in in an informal setting, obviously an attorney's office, the statements that you make today are made under oath, and therefore they carry the same weight and effect as if you were testifying in front of a judge and a jury at trial. Do you understand that? She'll say yes. Then I'll continue. When we are speaking in general conversation, a lot of times you know people know what I'm going to say and and they finish people's sentences, but this isn't normal conversation. We have a court reporter or a stenographer sitting here who's going to take down everything we say word for word. And in order to allow her to do her job, we need to make sure that we don't speak over each other. So let me ask the full question, even if you think you know what I'm going to say. Let me complete my question, and then I'll give you an opportunity to answer that question. So let's not talk over each other, and let's make it easier for our court reporter here. Second, or or next, I should say, um, at times, your attorney may make an objection to a question that is being asked. If your attorney makes an objection, allow him to place the objection on the record, and he will give you direction as to whether or not you are going to answer that question, or, you know, it'll be something that we'll have to uh, discuss off the record. Next, I want to tell you that your sole responsibility here today is to be truthful. Answer the questions in a truthful manner. Don't make things up. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Now, there are going to be times throughout the deposition where I may ask you to estimate or approximate, for example, approximately how many months went by, approximately how many emails did you send. And in those, those cases and those questions, you're permitted to use your reasonable judgment and approximate. But if I ask you a question and it's not an approximation and you don't know the answer to it, don't guess. Just tell me you don't know. It's an acceptable answer. If you don't know the answer to a question, just say you don't know. Now, I'm also going to um, be looking down at my notes from time to time, and it's going to be some pauses here and there, and and I understand that uh, we want to get through this as quickly as possible, but I ask you to be patient with me so that I can make sure that I've asked all the questions and that we have Uh, sufficient answers so that we don't have to do this again. I understand that this is taking time out of your day, and I'd like to get through this as quickly and as organized as possible. So I'm going to ask that you bear with me as we go through the questioning and I I check my notes. Um, And, you know, in addition, if there's something I ask you and you don't understand it, or you don't understand uh, the way that I've, I've, I've phrased it, I want you to tell me. Because We're not here to try to trick you into saying certain things or to give answers that you're not comfortable giving. I'm trying to ascertain the truth and the facts around this circumstance. And so, um, you know, this isn't something that that we're here trying to trick you. If you don't understand what I'm asking, tell me and I'll rephrase it. You know, and that's that's generally going to conclude the instructions. Sometimes we give additional instructions. when I'm at a deposition, it's obviously more eloquent than that, and it's more organized. But this is just to give you an idea of what the instructions will be at most depositions. After you've heard the instructions, then the questions start. And they're going to start depending upon the attorney and the style, right? Like, for example, sometimes um, instead of going through the general background questions the way that it's typically done, Let's say I've got a particularly hostile witness. I might want to ask some really, really uh, pointed questions up front and forget the background. It all depends, and it's it's the individual attorney's style. But in general, um, we've got Mrs. G here, the supervisor in Bob's case, and I'm going to start with some background. Uh, Could you please state your name and address for the record? So she gives her name and address. 
And uh, where are you currently employed, Mrs. J? And she'll tell us. And then we'll continue on. Uh, give me the benefit of your educational background. Where did you go to high school? Where did you go to college? What was your degree? Did you take any graduate classes? Do you have any special training or certifications? Um, do you have any human resources training? Do you go to any seminars on a regular basis concerning you know, how to deal with employees, how to deal with employment issues, sexual harassment training? Do you have any of that? So we'll go through all those basics, right? Maybe we'll ask some questions about a prior job to try to ascertain what her level of experience is with matters involving harassment and employment law because it's going to be relevant at some point to the case. She'll answer, and then we'll progress into the specifics of Bob's incident. Mrs. G, how do you know Bob? Well, Bob was a former employee of mine. And who hired Bob? And then she'd give an answer, and we'd go through it systematically, step by step, so that we have a full foundation upon which to ask questions and then introduce certain evidence at trial. And we'll get to the point where we're talking about the actual incident. Mrs. G, did Bob ever come to you in your office and tell you that his direct supervisor was making him feel uncomfortable? Yes or no? And, you know, you'll get an answer. Maybe it's not the answer you're looking for. Um, sometimes there's a lot of bickering back and forth between the attorneys. Oftentimes you might have a defense attorney who is trying to break the flow of the other attorney's questions and will just say, I object, I'm going to direct my client not to answer that question. And maybe they don't even have sufficient grounds to, to make that objection, but they do it to kind of break your flow. So that is the general overview of what happens at a deposition. How long is a deposition, which is another question that we've had, well, that depends. I have been at depositions that have lasted 15 minutes where the instructions were longer than the testimony itself. I've been at depositions that lasted five days. So it depends on the nature of the case, how many lawyers are involved in the case, what the issues are, how willing to, um, to, to give up the information a particular witness is, so it, it's, it's so, it varies so much. It really depends on so many factors. It's hard to say a deposition is, is two hours long. Generally speaking, personal injury depositions are somewhere in the area of two to four hours, generally speaking, for simplistic personal injuries, uh, neck and back injuries and car accidents and maybe some um, knee injuries, slip and fall sort of thing. But as the injuries become more complex, so do the questions. If the witness is complex or evading answering questions, it again will uh, lengthen the depositions. Depositions are a really great tool for attorneys. They're also a really great chance for a witness to tell his or her story. Because when things are on paper, it's very flat. You read the words and you sort of, um, you know, add your own interpretation to what's on the paper as the reader. But when you're sitting there looking at somebody face to face and asking questions, you can, like I said earlier, really observe their demeanor and they get a chance to express what they're feeling and how they view the facts in a particular case. You know, to give you an example, I had a case not too long ago where a uh, high school student was involved in a shop class accident, and it's kind of a gruesome tale, but um, what ultimately happened is that the girl was in shop class using a circular table saw, and table saws, for those of you that don't know, the blade spins towards you so that you can push wood along the table under the saw and make a cut. So the blade's turning towards her. She pushed wood through. She made the cut. And as she went to clear scrap wood from behind the spinning blade, she unfortunately didn't wait for the blade to stop. Her finger, her hand got caught in the rotating blades, and one finger was completely severed and thrown like 15 feet into the hallway, uh, and two other fingers were kind of hanging on by a thread. So she ultimately sues the school, sues the teacher, has surgery. Uh, her hands are, are badly deformed. 
and uh, it's her left hand, um, and you know you see pictures throughout the course of the case. You see the statements made on the written discovery, but you don't see her until the deposition. And I'll tell you, we were representing the school, and uh, when this girl sat down, the first thing I noticed was how polite and nice she was and how sympathetic she would appear to a jury. And as the, the deposition progressed, she was being extremely truthful, extremely honest. And at one point, I asked to see her hand, and she held it up and uh, said to me, you know, I always dreamed of getting married and the whole wedding you know, ceremony, having my, my husband put the ring on my finger, look at my hands, look at how deformed they are. It'll never happen. And in person, you're able to see, wow, you know, this, this really is um, sort of a tragic event. And while I'm doing my best to defend my client, right, and I'm, I'm looking at the legal issues to protect my client, I'm also now having an opportunity to observe something that I wouldn't have seen otherwise and make a determination based upon my, uh, my, my skill and, and uh, experience that, listen, if I present this to a jury and, and this girl holds up her hand and her fingers are all deformed, they're going to be so upset and so sympathetic. We're not going to have a good chance at trial to defend this case. So I was able to take the deposition and my experience meeting her and seeing her hand and go back to my client, uh, who happened to be an insurance company at the time, and explain to them, listen, if you put this girl on the stand at trial, you are going to end up getting um, a great deal of sympathy for her from the jury. And so we made a determination that it's probably a case we should settle. So here is an instance that you know, you can see how depositions have an impact on the case. If that girl had come in and uh, let's say her hand was still very deformed, but let's say that she was nasty and abusive, uh, she was pulling a Justin Bieber and she's not giving me answers, I'm going to see something different. And what I see is what a jury is going to see. I'm going to see that, hey, this girl is such a brat. Yes, it's a tragic situation. Yes, she has lost her fingers. Yes, her hand is now deformed. But, God, who wants to listen to her? She's so nasty. She's so mean. Uh, even if you accept the fact that she's bitter over what happened, you can't be that nasty. Then I would have had a different analysis. I would have come back to my client and said, listen, it's a bad injury for sure. But she is such an unlikable person at a deposition that imagine what she's going to be like at trial. And then you, you make a determination. So, Something to add to this discussion about depositions uh, is that when an attorney deposes or sits and, and uh, watches a deposition, the one thing that they're doing is analyzing the witness. Quite frankly, in reports that, you know, when I used to do a lot of insurance defense work, uh, we'd send reports to the carrier and explain what we observed at the deposition. And I'd always start with, and it's not just me, this is, this is standard across the industry, a physical description and um, demeanor analysis of the witness. So I would say things like, uh, the witness presented wearing jeans and a dirty sweatshirt. Uh, she was approximately X amount in height, X amount in weight. Uh, she appeared to be very tired she wore glasses or whatever else I observed, and then I'd get into uh, a little bit of an analysis about her demeanor. She appeared very nervous. She was sweating profusely. Uh, when questions were asked that became a little more complicated, she wouldn't make eye contact. And, and that's all relevant because while we're not psychiatrists or psychologists, we, we do have experience um, in questioning witnesses and knowing whether or not, or at least making our best guess as to whether or not that witness is telling us the truth. So that's a deposition. It sounds complex. It can be. The simple explanation is it is a question and answer session in an attorney's office made under oath by the witness. Okay, it's part of the discovery process. So that's it in a nutshell. Um, 
if you're interested in learning more about depositions or uh, if you are preparing for a deposition and your attorney hasn't explained uh, enough to you, uh, you can you know, browse our website, look at uh, our, our video library, or you can always give us a call. At the end of the show, I'll give you our main number, and you can always ask questions. Uh, we have no problem answering legal questions from people. We get them every day, and it's sort of uh, some, somewhat of a service that we provide. Um, there's no cost for answering your question. So if you're interested in learning more about depositions, give us a call, and we will walk you through it. Now, that took a long time. Uh, let's move into the next question. What is a motion? Okay, so you've heard people all the time, file a motion. I'm going to file a motion. I've got a motion. Make a motion. What, what the heck is it? What is a motion? Um, well, let's see if I can get through this in a very simplified manner. A motion is simply a request that you make to a court for a particular type of relief. There are hundreds of different motions that you could make. You could make a motion to compel discovery because the one side hasn't given you the written discovery demands that you've asked for or requests that you've asked for, responses, I should say. You could make a motion to compel a deposition because the witness won't comply with your subpoena or your notice to take deposition. You can make a motion for summary judgment. You can make a motion to dismiss the case. On and on. They're endless. Uh, well, not quite endless, but they're very, very long. It's a request that I'm going to make to the court. Well, how do I convey that request to the court? How do I allow for due process to occur? I can't just go call up the judge and say, hey, you know, judge, listen, I got an issue here, and I'm going to make a motion. Well, that doesn't give the other side an opportunity to respond. Um, it doesn't give the judge an opportunity to fairly analyze what your request is, whether or not it should be granted, or whether or not there's some additional information that, that must be made available before a decision can be made. Because, you know, while I've often said um, the law is not fair, our legal system tries to be as fair as possible. The law is what it is, and it's not black and white, and you've got one side arguing uh, points of law and, and twisting things against the other. But the judicial system in and of itself is set up in a way that is reasonably fair. Now, you're going to have people disagree and say, oh, it's not fair. What about people that end up going to jail when they didn't commit a crime? Well, I don't necessarily know that that's the, the court system per se, the legal system, the way it's analyzed as, as much as it is police investigation or the attorneys that presented the facts at at trial, right? I mean, go back to O.J. Simpson when they held they hold up the, the, the glove, right? And Johnny Cochran says, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, right? I mean, that just stuck in people's heads. And when you see this glove, I mean, it looked like the glove, quite frankly, had been, you know, had, had shrunken. It had shrunk. It was wet. It was filled with blood, whatever the case may be. But that was such a compelling uh, approach that, you know, it wasn't the legal system per se. It was, it was the attorney. It was Johnny Cochran who, who made that statement and was able to convince the jury. So the legal system, in my opinion, is reasonably fair. Everything else about the law might not be. But getting back to the motion discussion, so I want to request some sort of relief from the court. How am I going to do that in a method that's fair for all sides? Well, I'm going to file some papers. I'm going to write up some papers, and I'm going to send them into the court. I'm going to send them in to all the other attorneys connected on this case, and I'm going to allow them to answer or respond to my, my writing, my motion, and then I'm going to get a chance to respond again to their opposition. Then, if the court deems it appropriate, we're going to go in before the judge, and we're going to have a hearing on this motion. Now, what comprises a motion? Is it some sort of magical paper or is it a magical motion? You know, is a motion one thing? How do you do it? All right, quite simply, a motion is nothing more than a collection of certain papers that are submitted to the court. So, for example, in most states, you need a notice of motion, which is 
a piece of paper that gives notice to the other side, to your adversaries, and to the court that this is the relief you're requesting, and here's when you'd like the court to decide your request. You're also going to need something to support the motion. So you're going to need either an affidavit or a certification or a statement from you or from your attorney, I should say, or witnesses that spell out why you're requesting this relief and why you think it should be granted. And then you're going to want, in most cases, to attach exhibits that back up what your, you know, your requests are. Sometimes, depending upon the nature of the motion, you might also need to include a legal brief, which discusses the legal issues in depth and then refers to certain cases. They call it case law. You'll look at prior cases and see, well, the court in this case decided this, and therefore, in this case, our court also must decide that way. So you might have to have a legal brief, and then you're going to have to have a document called an order. An order is essentially what you want the judge to sign. So let me give you the example of a, uh, a motion to compel a deposition. Let's say that you are the plaintiff and you want to take the deposition of a particular defendant. And your attorney reaches out to that defendant's attorney and says, I'd like to schedule depositions. They pick a date, April 1st. April, April 1st comes and, you know, in the morning before the deposition, the defendant's attorney says, my guy's sick. He can't make it. We have to reschedule. Okay rescheduled for April 15th. On April 14th, the attorney calls and says, you know, my guy has to to work late. He's on a business trip. He's not going to be back in town in time. Okay, we'll reschedule. Third time now. Reschedule for April 30th. April 30th, oh, well, one of his children are sick, so he can't come. So at this point now, it seems clear that the witness is not going to be willing to, um, to make this easy. They're going to fight it for whatever reason. Now, I'm not saying that those events in that guy's life haven't happened. You know, you're a defendant in a, in a lawsuit, and you're, you're setting these dates, and then you can't show up. Well, something has to happen. So now I'm frustrated. I'm plaintiff's attorney. I'm frustrated. What am I going to do? I'm going to file a motion to compel a date certain for this gentleman's deposition. So I'm going to fill out a, a notice of motion on, let's say, that the uh, date that the court can hear this. Um, and by the way, certain times, certain courts and states, they set their motion dates. They set the dates that a court can hear a motion. And others, I'll, I'll leave it up to the attorney. Um, but let's assume for a second that the motion date in my state, that the, the first date that the judge can hear this, this issue is on May 1st. So I, I'm going to fill out a notice of motion. It says on May 1st, I'm going to appear before this judge and um, I want to compel a date certain for the deposition of the defendant. Then I need to do a certification or attorney affidavit or something that says, I'm an attorney at law. I am familiar with this case. Here's, has, here's what's, what's happened, Judge. We served re- requests for depositions. We've set up three depositions. Each time the defendant has canceled, this is now creating uh, unnecessary delay, problems for my client. So, Judge, what I want you to do is I want you to issue an order compelling this defendant to appear for his deposition on a date certain. Uh, so let's pick a date, Judge, and that's the date that he's got to appear. So I'm going to also, in conjunction with my attorney affidavit, attorney affirmation, or attorney certification, depending upon your state, I'm going to submit an order And in connection with my affidavit or affirmation, I'm probably going to want to send something in as evidence of the fact that we did have these dates. So maybe I wrote confirming letters to the other attorney setting the dates up uh, previously. Maybe I want to attach them as exhibits so I can say to the court, listen, judge, there's no way that this guy can say he didn't know about it because here's the letters that I sent out confirming. It might just help my position. And, uh, and then I, I submit the order as well. So in this sort of motion, I have a notice of motion, an affidavit or certification of myself as the attorney, some exhibits, and then a court order that I want the judge to sign. I serve that on the other side. I file it with the court. Then the other side will have a chance to oppose it, and they will file a, um, a 
brief or a certification. They'll send it back to me, and it'll say something like, uh, this isn't true, these were legitimate reasons, or whatever the case may be. And then I'll have a chance to do a reply. And in the reply, I'm just essentially addressing the issues raised in the opposition. And it's, again, just a, a letter, or it could be in the form of a brief, or whatever you choose, depending upon the circumstances. You send it back in, and then you have a hearing. You go to court, and the judge says, I've reviewed both your motions. I've reviewed the evidence that's attached to the motion. Uh, I want to hear oral argument. So, you know, Mr. Lamont, what do, you, what do you have to say? Maybe the judge will ask some questions. Maybe he won't. And then they'll go to the other attorney. You know, Attorney B, what do you have to say? And then the judge will issue his decision and put it down in an order. So a motion is simply a tool uh, by which you can request certain relief from the court and a motion is actually comprised of various documents. So while a notice of motion, a certification, a court, a, a, an order, a proposed order, maybe a legal brief, maybe that together makes up your motion, but there's no such legal document called a motion. You'd have a notice of motion, a certification, a brief, that combined makes your motion. So... Uh, hopefully that answers the question as to what a motion is. Uh, again, the same way I, I mentioned earlier with the deposition, if you have questions about a motion, if you're trying to prepare one by yourself in a small case and uh, you, know, you have a, a question that you want answered, give us a call and we'll go through that with you. All right, so we've got about 15 minutes left and I want to make sure that we have some time to get into uh, our upcoming guests so that you can start thinking about questions that you might have for them. Um, but I want to get to, uh, I, I think, a business question that we received. And this one concerns charitable works. Uh, if you listen to last week's show, uh, we had some, some discussion about social media uh, and, and the week prior, uh, too, I believe. Um, we talked with Brian Glynn from Cigar Obsession we talked with uh, uh, Mr. Dudell, who wrote the book uh, on Shark Tank, which is the, uh, the television show with the investors. And our discussions centered around the use of social media, advertising, marketing in the modern age, that sort of thing. And oftentimes we see questions coming in either from clients or, or people that just want uh, some clarification about charitable works. Well, what happened was, a few days ago, we received a Facebook post, um, and somebody said, you know, I see that a lot of companies, including our law firm, uh, they have a charitable works page, and they talk about some of the charitable events that they have uh, been involved in. Why is that? You just want to look good so that people say, hey, these guys are nice guys, and, you know, we should, you know, give them our work because they like charity. Well, here's the answer, and, and here's how you as a business need to approach this. If you are giving to charity to make yourselves look better, don't do it because it's not the right reason, and people will see through that. You must, if you're going to give to charities, if you're going to do charitable work, it, it must be something that resonates with you. It must be something you're connected with. You know, you just can't go out and... and put a ton of people on your website that you've donated to and expect that people are, are going to give you business. That's not how it works. Charitable works is not a marketing tool per se. It's not something that you want to say, hey, look, I'm involved with the American Heart Association, so you know, I'm not, I don't really care. I just want your business. That is not the way to do it. People will see through that. If you're going to do charitable works, as a business owner, you must have a passion for whatever you are going to be working with or whatever organization. Uh, I'll give you an example. We work with the American Heart Association. We work with um, Heart Block Coalition and other heart-affiliated charities. Well, why do I do that? Well, many of, of, of my listeners are aware that my my middle son has a pacemaker. He is eight years old. He is a pacemaker. He'll have it for the rest of his life due to a heart condition. And uh, he's had it since he was six months old. And seeing that really you know, touched me deep down. I mean, it's something that 
is a part of me now. It changed me, changed my, my makeup and the way that I see things. And when I see children that are suffering with illnesses like heart block, it, it, it really it affects me. I get very emotional about it. So my desire to give to heart-related foundations has nothing to do with publicity. It has to do with this is the right thing to do. Regardless of your religious or moral or ethical beliefs, you know, this is something I feel strongly about. I don't want to see children suffering. I want to see children thriving like, like my son has, has done. And, and so that's why we do it. Cancer associations that we give to. Cancer is something that's prevalent in my family. And so I, I have a connection with it. Um, you know, we, we donate to the police departments and police funds. Well, why? Well, because every time my kids have had a problem and we've had to have uh, an ambulance come to take them to the hospital, somebody fell or got hurt or whatnot, the police have always been there. They've always been there to help. So I feel a connection to the charities that we are involved with. We recently donated to CHOP, which is the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We gave toys. Well, why? Because I don't want to see these kids stuck in the hospital not have something to do. I would do this regardless of whether or not we had a business, but I believe as a business owner, you have a social responsibility to, to donate to charities and organizations that you feel strongly about. You know, as a business, we have money that can go to those foundations, and even if we don't have money to go to them, we can have a co-drive. Every year we do an annual co-drive. Why do we do it? I don't get business from the coat drive. I would be, that's completely the wrong way to, to approach it. So many people have, have said, oh, well, I get publicity from it. You know, you might get residual publicity, but if that's why you're doing it, you should think twice and not do it. So this should address the questions that we received on charitable works. A lot of them were, hey, if I do charitable works, will I get some free publicity from it? And you know, I understand the question, but, um, you know, it kind of is a little upsetting to hear questions like that because it just defeats the purpose of doing charitable work. Listen, we do a lot of things here that we don't even talk about, and I will never talk about, but they're, they're meant for charities, they're meant for individuals, um, things that are done anonymously. Why? If I'm not going to talk about them and you're not going to know about them, how am I getting publicity? It's because there's a passion for it. So please think twice before you start engaging in charitable works for the purposes of publicity. It's a very, very bad thing to do. Okay, now I want to talk about some other uh, topics. Well, let's get to one more topic and then we'll do a tie-in to what's going to be coming up in the next few weeks. And that is stress in the workplace. We get a ton of questions about how do I manage stress in the workplace? I know you're not a doctor or a psychiatrist, but uh, from your experience in, in business, and again, our experience ranges from sole proprietors all the way up to large international companies, how do you see people handling it? How do you yourself as a business owner handle stress? And it's really a great question. It really is. And I think that too many people overlook the impact that stress has on your personal life, your professional life. So uh, within the next few weeks, we are going to have on the show uh, a doctor. Um, right now, it looks like we're going to be lining somebody up from Columbia uh, Hospital, New York Presbyterian uh, Medical Center, to talk about the impact of stress on you as an individual and how it carries over into your business life. So this conversation is going to be focused on the business aspect of stress. What can stress do to you in your business world? How can it detrimentally impact your ability to go out and do public speaking engagements or to get new clients or to promote uh, certain activities that you're doing? What's the correlation between stress and depression? You know, those sorts of topics, we're going to go through that. So that's something that, that I'm excited about because I can't think of any business owner, sole proprietor, all the way up to large CEOs that have not experienced debilitating stress at some point in their career and some form of depression. doesn't have to be 
you know, uh, severe. It doesn't have to make you sit in your room and cry. But every one of us has experienced some, some form of mild to moderate or severe, in some cases, depression as a result of stress from work. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, so that's very exciting. Uh, also, next week, we're going to have Lori Cheek, who is the CEO and founder of Cheeked on the show. And uh, for those of you who have uh, watched Shark Tank, you might recall Lori was a um, participant in the Shark Tank show. And she came up with this very unique uh, dating company. And she'll talk more about it when we have her on the air. But uh, the premise behind it is that dating, while you know, you've got these online sites, uh, it can be more effective when you do it in the real world. But a lot of times people are too shy or embarrassed to go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I find you attractive. Do you want to go have lunch? I mean, how often has, have we done that, right? Um, and I applaud those of you that can do that. But most of us can't. And so she came up with this idea where you buy packs of business cards from Cheek that have very unique and funny pickup lines on them, along with a, um, a client-specific identification code. And that code is unique to, to you, the purchaser of the card. So that allows you to go see somebody in the store, see somebody at a bar, and uh, you know, think that maybe you're attracted to them, want to talk to them, want to get to know them. You give them the card, they go home, they type in your code into the website, and they get to know you uh, from the virtual world, but you made the initial contact in the real world. And when she was on Shark Tank, uh, the investors kind of gave her a really, really hard time about the business, calling it a hobby and whatnot. And she has persevered and pressed on. She has uh, been recognized by a lot of organizations and magazines, um, an upcoming you know, top 10 woman entrepreneur. So she's really got a unique and interesting story to tell us. She's a very dynamic personality. So we're really excited about having her on. She's going to talk about, um, you know, a passion and persevering through struggles and challenges like we all in the business world face. So she's going to give us some insight. She's going to talk a little bit about uh, mistakes that she made so that we can learn from her mistakes. So we're, we're looking forward to that. We're appreciative of her coming on. Uh, we also have Michael Dudell coming back. Again, he is the author of the Shark Tank book. And he is going to give us some practical tips about starting a business. So we're going to have a special show coming up on uh, this coming Monday. And we're going to talk about the whole show is going to be focused around starting a business, what you need to know, what you need to do from uh, a legal standpoint and otherwise. And then uh, midway through the show, we're going to bring Mr. Dudell back on, and he's going to give uh, more or less his top a list of things that you need to do to start a business. So that's going to be this coming Monday. It's going to be a very interesting show. Uh, we also have uh, obviously rescheduled today's discussion about medical marijuana. So look for that to come back on. Um, and we've just got a, a ton of, of uh, interesting topics coming up. So check the websites. It's understandingthelawradio.com. We also have a Facebook page. And uh, make sure that you follow along with us so that you don't miss one of these interesting shows. You can always download the show. It's available on iTunes, and it's also uh, on the site. Uh, so we're running out of time for today. I'd like to thank you for joining me. I'd like to thank you for dealing with the change in schedule with our guest today. Um, we'll be back this Monday with Mr. Judell. We're going to talk about business stuff, and then we'll be back on Thursday, our regular scheduled um, uh, program with Lori Cheek. If you have a question, you want to contact me, 973-949-3770 or email at info at peterlamontesq.com. I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Remember that there's power in understanding the law. Right now, you can get a $20 prepaid Visa gift card by mail with the purchase of a Napa Legend Premium Battery. 
Its durability and power make it the obvious choice for people who hate getting stranded by a dead car battery. So pretty much everyone. The Napa Legend Premium Battery and $20 back. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care Centers. Limit two per household while supplies last. Offer ends 228.19.